this guy made Benjamin Harrison pay for a baseball ticket and lived to see someone on the moon. He lived to see someone on the moon. That's wild. Welcome to episode 31 of the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 and under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. Season 2 is sponsored by Greek's Pizzeria. Place your order today at greekspizzeria.com. Greek's Pizzeria, it's our taste. And today is the last episode of season 2. I know, it is. We've come a long way from that one breakfast almost a year and a half ago. Uh, well, I'm your host, Ryan Allward, joined by Blaine Zimmerman. What day is it? And our, October. <laughs> and our producer, Russ Slivka. If you want to get these episodes early and ad-free, join our Patreon community for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash presequential. For five bucks more a month, you can also get our exclusive bonus episodes on other influential Americans sent to you on email. Sign up today at patreon.com slash presequential. If you are a patron, by the way, we love you and we really appreciate your support. Blaine, what are we calling episode 31? Tell us about the book and the name of the booze that we're drinking. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of the episode is The Fisherman, which we'll get to. Okay. He was a fisherman. (laughs) And there's the reasoning. Yeah. So the book was Hoover and... Extraordinary Life in Extraordinary Times by Kenneth White, W-H-Y-T-E, White. It was written in 2017 and is 614 pages. We'll talk a little bit more about his outdoorsman lifestyle. Yeah. He was a large martini man. And we're drinking martinis tonight. Dry martinis, gin, vermouth. Russ and I are doing it with the lime rind. It's a lemon twist. Lemon twist. Yeah. And Ryan's doing the traditional blue Blue cheese stuffed olives. Yeah. So fun fact, none of us have really ever drank martinis before. I don't think I ever have. (laughs) So this is like, and we purposely not tasted these (laughs) until this. So this could go really poorly. And your wife, Ginny, who is a legitimate bartender. Was. uh, Was. I mean, she's still like a Marine. I guess Uh, she's still it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Once a bartender, always a bartender. She She made made these these for us. I'm excited to see what it tastes like. So fun fact about him drinking martinis martinis he would drink two martinis after dinner every night and as he reached old age which was very old yeah his doctors told him he couldn't do that anymore and he was like yeah pound sand i'm not stopping my <laughs> martini after dinner and they were like okay well then you have to have one you have to cut it down to one so what he did was he had his like servants just make the same amount but bring it in a bigger glass <laughs> <laughs> like a thermos yeah <laughs> so oh. cheers to cheers. herbert hoover and martinis. Cheers, boys. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Oh, this isn't bad. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I can no deal with that. olives or blue cheese. It's 67% approval rating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we will point out that the one that didn't like it has blue cheese olives. Oh, God, that's Correct. horrible. It's not good at all. It's got like so a you film would... on top of it. It's just bad. These that's... martinis are shaken, not stirred. Yeah, they're oh, shaking. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I didn't know that like the original martini was a gin martini. Yeah, so uh, that was something I learned. Apparently, vodka martinis didn't become like in vogue until the late '60s, early '70s. Hmm. So his yeah. martinis definitely would have been gin. gin, and yeah. he liked a dry martini, which is why we went with dry vermouth instead of sweet vermouth. Yeah, and then the gin is some sort of Japanese. Gin, right? Oh, yeah. This is our finest Japanese Roku gin distilled in Japan. Six unique Japanese botanicals. A special thanks also to our mystery alcohol sponsor out there. We know that you are listening. What do you guys remember about Herbert Hoover from social studies? Great Depression. Okay. Damn. Yeah. That's uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Me too. 
I, I vaguely remember Nobody, hearing about the right. Hoover Dam, but yeah, great yeah, impression. Right, you got it. Generally, like you can overlook his presidency is kind of what I remember. Which, as we'll find out, and as everyone listening will find out, my impression of him from beginning of the book to the end is considerably different, and he yeah. is very high on my list now. Yeah, we read this book a long, long time ago, as opposed to when we're recording it now in January. But I remember when you were reading it, uh, <laughs> and it is a good book. We should say it is a good book. It's a very good book. Um, I would highly recommend this book. As you were reading it, you were like, I really like this guy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If we went back through, if, if we were, if we had the time to go back to those text messages, I remember like being very excited and being like, guys, I think I might have a new favorite president. I think you Every should time, do the lemon God, the next round. I take a sip of this drink. It's horrible. I really like how much you overreact to bad drinks. Like you feel like you and I had very different college experiences. It's not good it's at like all. you drink something you don't like and you make a big deal out of it. Like I drink something I don't like and I'm like, hey, we could power through this. <laughs> it's the end result that really matters, right? <laughs> He was born on either August 10th or 11th, 1874. West. Nobody really checked the time until well after the big moment had passed. His parents were Quakers. His dad, Jesse, was a blacksmith. West in Branch, Iowa. That's little tiny town part. in the eastern part of the state. His mom was a devout and very austere woman named Hulda, this making him the first president born west of the Mississippi. But he almost didn't make it that far. The day he was born, his father rapped on his sister's window and said, we have another General Grant at our house. Luckily for little Birdie, as Herbert was called as a child, his mother's brunk brother, I almost said Brunkle, was an acclaimed doctor in the area, Dr. Henry John Minthorn. So it's the winter of 1876 and little Birdie comes down with a horrible case of the croup. And Blaine, you have your hand up. Yes, go ahead. He was supposed to be named Hubert because yeah. his mother was a big fan of this book called Pierre and His Family. And it would have been Hubert, right? <laughs> Hubert. <laughs> the Hubert Rapport. <laughs> the problem was, I guess, printing wasn't super standardized. Yeah. So she thought the character's name was Herbert. Yes. Oh. Not Hubert. So he was misnamed, misnamed. essentially. <laughs> it's the winter of 1876. He's about a year and a half, two years old. And he comes down with a horrible case of croup. He turned purple. He was coughing so hard and he collapsed. And his family threw some pillows on a table, laid him down. He was motionless. They spread goose grease and an onion poultice all over in an attempt to revive him. What? Is a poultice. It's like you, I think you grind up the onions and you like make it into like a salve or like a spread. And I don't know why, but they thought that that would like help to Was it supposed to be like smelling salts? So you both know what goose <coughs> grease is and I don't know what that is. Goose grease? Yeah. I think it's like rendered fat from a goose. Yeah. That oh, like, I mean, you, okay. like a Vicks vapor. I, I was just assuming grease like any grease. Like it's just like, like bacon fat. Yeah. They even put dimes on his eyes and put a sheet over him. They thought he was dead. <laughs> Little birdie uh, must have said, I'm not dead yet because he... He woke up after his uncle, Dr. Minthorn, removed a ton of phlegm from his throat and he performed mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. And Herbert came to. No one could believe their eyes. And uh, they saw yeah, it as like this they're divine... watching an adult just stick his hand down yeah. a child's throat. No, I wouldn't believe my eyes either. He's like, they, I got this. There's something down there. They thought it was like divine intervention. So they were very devout. Quaker family, mm -hmm. so everything was through that lens. But four years later, his dad dies when Herbert is six. Four years after that, his mom, Hulda, dies as well, making Herbert and his two siblings, Theodore and Mary, orphans. The children were split up among family, and Uncle Henry, the one who had saved his life, who was now living in Oregon, came to the rescue once again when he took Herbert in the following year. So, kind of. He originally moved in with, like, his teacher. And I don't have the notes in front of me on this, but I remember it relatively well. Like he moved in with like his favorite teacher or like a local teacher that saw the opportunity and the need, not the opportunity, and was like thriving for yeah. a year or two. 
So he lived with the teacher for a year or two before his uncle stepped in and grabbed him. Yeah, and said, come on out to be with me in Oregon. Basically raised him as an indentured servant. Yeah. It was a super rough childhood. They raised him more like a, a laborer, but wanted to point out that his doctor uncle, what was his name? Dr. Minthorn. Dr. Minthorn. Mm-hmm. His thesis was titled, Vaginal Touch as a Means of Exploration in Pregnancy. Oh my. I don't know what angle he was taking. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) but it's bold if you're a Quaker to write a paper like that. Yeah. From Iowa. I'm in Oregon. Well, yeah, he was out in Oregon. Uh, He had a a land company. In the evenings, Herbert would attend classes at a business college locally, but he would like sleep, you know, behind the counter in his uncle's shop. And yeah, yeah because they an, did not see him as a child no, that needed to be no. developed. They saw yeah. him as another way, like a free labor. Yeah. Well, determined to attend the newly established Leland Stanford Junior University in California and become an engineer, Hoover took the school's entrance exam and failed. But because a professor noted he had promise, Hoover was conditionally accepted and became a student in the inaugural 1891 class. So in case you missed it, he was in the very first class at Stanford. Yeah. Palo Alto, California. Have you ever been there? I have not. Uh, No, I haven't. I've been there once. Was out there for work in Palo Alto. Decided to go run on the campus because I was curious. If you've ever been to Palo Alto and Bloomington, they're very similar. I walked away from Stanford saying that Stanford is very much reminded me of a Spanish-style Bloomington, Indiana. I can get behind that. Isn't their mascot one of those that doesn't end with It is a tree. Yeah, the cardinal. The Stanford cardinal. Yeah, and it's that weird looking tree. Oh yeah, the mascot is weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you remember from previous episodes, relatively lackluster student. Yeah, he majored um, in geology. Which is important. Yep. A thriving businessman. He was the school treasurer. Uh, At one point at a Stanford baseball game, forced Benjamin Harrison to pay for a ticket. Oh yeah, that's right. uh, Which Charlie Hyde, the CEO of the Harrison home, says... That Benjamin Harrison just didn't realize he hadn't paid for it. This book makes it seem like he thought he was president, so he didn't need to. And Herbert Hoover was like, "Uh, sorry, it's seven bucks, sir. (laughs) He had multiple jobs, and then he ended up starting multiple businesses while he was at Stanford. And then he ended up selling his laundry business and his paper route business. Like he sold the book of business to underclassmen. And I have a theory that had he been at Stanford in 2001, he definitely would have dropped out and become a tech bro. Yeah. yeah. He was highly entrepreneurial. I feel like there's no Facebook if we don't have the original Stanford class entrepreneurial (laughs) Herbert Hoover (laughs) selling his laundry business. I like that theory. That's Because what he was doing, his laundry business was essentially like he would go pick up laundry from other students for a fee and go do the laundry and bring it back. And like he built this book of business, same thing with the paper route. And then when he graduated, he sold his books of business to underclassmen. Yeah. It's like genius. Well, he graduates in 1895 and he struggles to find a job as a surveyor afterwards. And he went to work pushing ore carts at a gold mine near Nevada City, California. Two years later, he moved to Australia to work as a mining engineer. Then he went to China two years later after that, marrying his wife, Lou Henry, who was also a geology major at Stanford. Uh, Spanish IU. The day before they left for China, Herbert and Lou had met there at Stanford. She was the only, I should have said, the only geology major at Stanford. Between 1901 and 1914. So this is a big span of time. Blaine, you just did a timeout. Go ahead. You skipped over a lot of things. Go ahead. 
he was effectively like a boy genius when it came to mining and gold. Mm -hmm. So when he he was working for Bewick Mooring. Yep. Is that, am I saying that right? Bewick Mooring and Company. Bewick Mooring. He was super successful, but he was also super ruthless. So he worked his laborers to the bone. Mm -hmm. And if I remember right in Australia at the time, a lot of them were probably just coming out of prison. They were British prisoners sent to Australia. Everyone in Australia at that point was a prisoner, basically. Not everyone. There are people from there. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Um, So he had some friends from Stanford that came out to work for him. Yeah. And he was trying to let them know, hey, I'm not Herb. This isn't Herbie. This is Mr. Hoover. When you're coming out here, like you're working and I need you to understand this is his quote. This is hell and I am the devil. That was what he told his friends. And none of them made it more than like 60 days. Yeah, he's like, I told you. They were like, yeah, that's that wasn't Herbie. And there's pictures (laughs) of him, too. And he's like in a full business suit out there. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? You got to be. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened was he realized how much money he was making for Buick and Mooring. Yep. And basically called him to task on it. And he was like, hey, I'm making you guys a ton of money and you're only paying me this much. I'm about to start my own thing and I'll steal all your workers. Yeah. And so they basically, they kind of settled up with him. But as like a punishment, they sent him to China. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to go to China, but they gave him what he, you know, had asked for money wise. And then they were like, well, we need you to do in China. And then he went like a whole nother level. Correct. Of like, you know, cracking the whip for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. While he was there in China, the boxer rebellion happened. He actually was under fire from Marines. Because they didn't realize they were like Americans. Yeah. Like, so American Marines were shooting at him while he was running one of the mines. Yeah, they were in like a walled compound, he and Lou. And they and other foreigners were being besieged for more than three weeks straight. Which is some good foreshadowing for Belgium. The work that he would soon do. Because he was like the sieged in this scenario. So he was in this fort and the Marines were like trying to hunger him out, if you will. Like wait him out. Why was he in the fort? He okay. went from Australia mm-hmm. to China. So the Chinese Engineering and Mining Com- uh, Corporation or the CEMC had hired him. We should well, we should back up. They hired him. Bewick and Mooring yes. and Mooring okay. made him Send go. Sent him to China and then he switched. <clears throat> uh, so he went to China to be a the miner. same position. Okay. Uh, an engine, same thing he was doing guy. which was like a taskmaster. Yeah. He was basically running the mines. But he was also kind of the one that was like surveying the land and being like, we need to mine here. Yeah. And Uh, he was really good at that. All the places he said, we need to mine here, produced a ton of gold. Correct. I mean, he was also, he was amassing this huge personal fortune too. Like he made 4 million bucks at the time, which was like close to a hundred million dollars now. No big deal. Out of college by about mm, five to 10 years. How did he make the $4 million? He found gold. Oh, He was the, the, like I said, he was the one saying, we need to mine here. So he was getting a cut oh, of all okay, of the yeah, mines that he was, yeah. He also became like an independent mining consultant over time. He wrote a book called Principles in Mining. He's actually, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but like mining plays a part in little known facts as well about his legacy, which is pretty cool. But yeah, the Boxer Rebellion was like this period of time where it was interesting in their story where like they're fre- pretty freshly married give or take. And they were in 40 different countries and four continents. I mean, this couple, this young couple was moving and they were moving up. Very well traveled. Yeah. And so he's riding home to a friend and he says, filthy rich. 
You should have been there at the most interesting siege and bombardment of the age. You missed one of the opportunities of your life by not coming to China in the summer of 1900. Actually, that's Lou writing to a friend, his wife. What a wild thing to say. Yeah, right? that's his wife. Like, yeah. You really missed the opportunity to get shot at. Yeah. Uh, it was dope. Lou was cool, too. I mean, <laughs> Lou Lou tended to the wounded. Oh, and, man. Her and she, life story. Like, I'm excited to talk about her later in life. Yeah. She delivered milk to a makeshift hospital on her bike, and she had its tire punctured by a bullet as she was doing it. So she wasn't this kind of like just stay at home, you know, housewife. She was out there in the middle of it, too. Mm -hmm. Like somebody was trying to keep her from delivering milk? No, like it was she was like crossing battle lines and firing was happening. By the time they had come back to America in 1917, Lou had learned to shoot a gun and had mastered eight languages. So this is a very intellectual, very bright, very a ton of business acumen kind of couple. If you think about it, too, she was the only geology major at Stanford and was a woman, and in the time... Well, only the fact female that, geology major, because he was too. You're right. She was the only female. She was the yeah. only female geology major, but the fact that a woman was even at Stanford at all yeah. is pretty impressive at the time, <clears throat> let alone like in a field like that. Yeah. Let's go into the humanitarian relief effort. So he comes to Stanford. He would have accepted a job to become a trustee on the board for Stanford. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, to go back to your alma mater and serve. So he's in England. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Great War breaks out. And he later commented that the outbreak of war in Europe had changed his life. He said, I did not realize it at the moment, but on August 3rd, 1914, my engineering career was over forever. I was on the slippery road of public life. He arranged in six weeks. That's a better way of saying it than saying that the war changed his life forever. Because saying the war changed his life forever seems like an understatement like saying i didn't realize it at the time yeah makes way more sense than us in hindsight being like changed his life yeah. forever like yeah, yeah no yeah. crap well he arranged in six weeks <laughs> for the evacuation of 120,000 americans trapped in war-torn europe and he later became chairman of the commission for relief in belgium which raised millions of dollars and provided food medicine and supplies for more than the nine million belgian and french citizens after Germany invaded. So I want to unpack both of those things mm-hmm. quickly. I don't want to spend a ton of time on them, but I want to make sure people understand what you just said. He was on his way home when the war broke out. And then he was trapped in England yeah. because a war broke out. And it's not like you're just jumping on a plane. You can't jump on a ship because you don't know when you're going to get torpedoed at any time. Correct. He personally took it upon himself for free to figure out how to get the how many? 120,000 Americans. Home. To America. Yeah. That were expatriates stuck. Essentially yeah. refugees at that point. Yeah. And then found out that Germany had besieged Belgium. Yeah. And was like, okay, well, how do we get them food? Right. And organized, planned, and figured it out all on his own. For nine million people. And was so successful that both sides of the war handed him a card to cross enemy lines whenever he wanted. Yeah. Like an actual physical card. Because you have to remember, this is trench warfare. Yeah. This is yeah. not the type of warfare that anybody's familiar with today. It is Correct. literally, there is a line, there are people in a hole over here, there are people in a hole over here, and then they shoot each other. Yeah. I feel like that's simplifying it, but it's really not. That's no, okay. what World War One was. Yeah. He had a card where he could just go wherever he wanted, and no one was allowed to shoot at him. They'd yeah. be like, hey, this one's good. It's fine. And he would yeah. bring trucks in, and he fed 9 million Belgians. Yeah. The orphan from West Branch, Iowa. That was raised as a day laborer for his uncle in Oregon. Yeah. At it one is- point, he had a fleet of 600 ships flying under neutral flags under his leadership. 
It wasn't getting paid paid for it. Now, granted, he had plenty of money he didn't need to get paid. Sure. However, name a rich guy now that's just stepping up being like, I see a problem, I'm going to fix it for the sake of humanity. It's not a thing that exists. It's absolutely insane. I feel like that we needed to break that down. Yeah. Because that's an incredible thing that all we know is, well, he was responsible for the Depression. Right. Yeah, that's like what you might remember about his presidency. But the man, Herbert Hoover, I mean, just to think of like the organizational acumen that you have to have. I mean, just the logistics alone for during war, nonetheless. This isn't like peacetime. Just to take it upon yourself. Yeah. Yeah. When he did get back, Wilson wanted to name him food dictator. (laughs) Yeah. He basically had him run the the U.S. uh, food administration. But the concept of rationing, Mm. Herbert Hoover came up with that concept. So his ideal was, let's make every housewife feel like they're part of the war effort. And yeah. this was before we were even in the war. Yeah. It was, how do we get people to feel like they're contributing to something that they're not necessarily fighting Correct. yet, right? He came up with the idea of like meatless Mondays mm-hmm. and, and convinced housewives, they all got a card, pledge cards. Yeah. They all had to sign a pledge card saying, I'm going to do, I'm going to ration yep. this by rubberless whatever and meatless yep. Mondays and all this. And I do think that it's interesting to think, and I really want to pose this to you guys and anybody listening. Mm-hmm. Do you think right now, if an international crisis happened and someone came and said, we all need to come together and ration, would we as a mm-hmm. country do that now? Yes. I'd like to think we would. I think a significant portion of the country would do it. Yeah. I mean, all I can speak for is... Wait, my, what are we my, rationing? My family. Food. Meatless Mondays. Let's let's just use that sure. specific thing as an example. Can I play devil's advocate? Do you not think that one side or the other would go, we actually don't have to ration. That's just X party saying you have to ration. I don't think that we would be able to do it anymore. I don't think that we're at that point that there's any unifying thing. I think that no matter what. To Russ's point, I think many people would. There would be millions of people who would say, absolutely. Many people. Yeah. But many people can still only mean half the country. Sure. But yeah, did I mean, the entire country do it? Yeah. Well, there was a term that, I mean, it became known as hooverizing. Yeah. Like to hooverize something, basically ration consumer goods. And it made him a household name. Uh, Wilson named him to be the head of the American Relief Administration after the end of the war in 1918. And he helped send 34 million tons of food, clothing, and supplies here's, back to Europe. Here's the other thing that I think is important to understand about this, too. At the time, we're not doing this for American soldiers. We're doing this for other country soldiers that we aligned with. Other country citizens, not just soldiers. Right. Yeah. Like, that's the other thing that, that I guess, taking yeah. my question into that context. Yeah. Do you think we're all banding together as a country that doesn't impact us directly? No. Not a chance. I mean, that is sad. That yeah. saddens me, but it also, like, it spoke volumes about what he was able yeah. to do through, granted, Pure propaganda. Sure. Not going to argue that's what a it was. A positive usage of propaganda. I sure. Mean, let's let's sure. call it yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, leadership sets the tone, right? I don't see leadership as top down. I think it from side to side. Like, I, I think the ideal is servant leadership, right? And I think leadership definitely is responsible for not just getting the job done, but really setting the tone of the collective. So we joke around a lot. And for good reason, right? And sure. Hope, and we'll get back to joking around in this. but <laughs> We promise. <laughs> yeah, but this was something that really, really stuck with me. When I read that portion of this book, and yeah. obviously 
we all said at the top, like yeah. we didn't know anything about Her- Hoover. And yeah. FDR, as we'll talk about, did a fantastic job, for lack of a better term, of villainizing the guy Yeah, as he was running for president. And yeah. then continuing to villainize him throughout his presidency. If you get to know the man and the character, which I feel like I've done a pretty good job of sticking yeah. with that as my lens. Yeah. He's a high character individual, and he was able to get the entire country to, well, for one, he got an entire continent to come together and two sides of a war to allow him to feed nine million people. Sure. And then he got an entire country to come together and ration their food to help other people that they never will meet or have any contact with or any type of direct impact on their lives. Like, that says a lot. Yeah, it really does. I mean, and to also think that he's not really a political guy at this point. I mean, no, a little flash not forward, even a little bit. A little flash forward. The presidency was the only time and the first time that he was elected to anything. You know, like and, yeah, and we'll and talk about he was getting pitched on both sides, yeah. left and right, to run for the presidency. Actually, in nineteen, and he had a hard time deciding which side he was going because yeah. he had never considered it. He it, never considered what party am I part of. In nineteen twenty, he kind of made this somewhat abbreviated run for the presidency, but he never explicitly agreed to the campaign. Let's go to break on this. Stat, and okay. then we'll go. We'll come out of break and talk about 1920, and then him running for for president. Sure, he was one of the very first people that saw the Treaty of Versailles. That's the type of influence he had. Not political. Did not have an actual post in any cabinet. Was not. Did not have a title. He was basically at that point funding himself of all the money he made off mining. Yep, and just doing things because it was the right thing to do. And Purely he was altruistic. the best. Per- yeah, like, he was seriously. the best person to do it. Wow. Right? He was one of the first people to see the Treaty of Versailles. And the first thing that he said was, if you take the coal mines from Germany, they won't have an economy. Therefore, they can't pay reparations. Mm. So you want to take their entire economic model away from them. And then you want to tell them they owe you money. They're not going to have money to pay you if you take it away. Nobody else even considered that as a fact. To be able to look at it from that type of lens and be like, no, guys, like I see what you're doing here. But you have to understand, like if you actually want them to be able to pay the fines, they have to be able to make money somehow. Right. That's an interesting part of his story, too, because Harding was at the point where the fuel source was shifting more from coal into oil. But mm-hmm. Hoover knew coal. I mean, he's looking at, at parts of the world that weren't as caught up industrially. Well, he probably knew oil, too. I mean, he knew the just the concept, the overall concept of yeah. mining and, and the importance. And he knew that part of the world. Yeah. This was its major export. And if you say, we're taking your major export, then... They have nothing to make money on. Yeah. He said, you do that, all you're doing is opening yourself to another war, which we did anyway. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, just because say, just be nice to nerds, kids. On that note, we'll be right back. You're listening to episode 31, The Fisherman. Fisherman. We'll be right back. Blaine, you look different. Did you get a haircut? Oh, I did. Thanks for asking. Oh, it looks nice. People have been noticing more often since I've started going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Say that one more time. Uh, people have noticed more often since I've been going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Chop Chop. Yeah. It's this super cool, very clean spot over by 16th and College area. Oh, yeah. 16th and Yandis, if you will. Okay, I will here uh, in Indy. Yeah, it's super cool building, old school style barbershop. Anthony always fades me up well. He leads this diverse team of three other barbers. All three of my kids get their haircuts there. Even my wife gets her haircuts Oh, they there. do ladies cuts yeah, too. From, you know, fades to braids and everything in between. I love that. And if I wanted more info, where could I go? I would check out, personally, chopchopbarbers.com. Okay, chopchopbarbers.com. From fades to braids to kitty cuts to the coolest barbershop there is. 
I don't want to look bad, so, so I'm going to go to Chop Chop Bar Shop. Yeah. yeah. Doop, doop. Yeah. Welcome back, friends. Hoover also extended aid to famine-stricken Russia in 1921 and rebuked a critic of this aid, saying, quote, 20 million people are starving. Whatever their politics, they must be fed. Again, this is a man of altruistic intentions and motivations. He is highly intelligent, as is his wife. And this entire time, he's been able to not really pick a political party, although he did serve as Secretary of Commerce under Presidents Harding and Coolidge from 1921 to 28, making him the last president to have held a full cabinet position. In this role, he became a popular and visible member of the government, which opened up a historic opportunity for him in 1927. He gave a speech on April 7th from Washington, D.C. He looked into a small black box and spoke into a telephone receiver for an experiment conducted by Bell Laboratories. This moving image was beamed more than 200 miles away to New Jersey and then onto the AT&T offices in Manhattan, making Herbert Hoover the first Hold person on. to... Hold on. Don't say it. Don't say it. ...to appear. Are you picking up on what he's saying? Based on what so. he just described, what do you think he just described? Live TV. Correct. Long distance live TV broadcast. Yep. Can I cool. like read the excerpt from the book? Because that was actually a thing. I yeah. So for... Those of you that can't see us, the <laughs> Which is all of you. <laughs> when I take notes in my field notes notebooks, do you not like that one either? I don't like this one either. This this martini that you because <laughs> I think it's I think you don't like vermouth because we thought it was the olives before, and then during the break you ate an entire jar of olives. Yeah, they're really so good. it was not the olives. <laughs> I made these rounds of martinis because Ginny is asleep, and yeah. Russ and I both think that I did a relatively good it job. It smells yeah, really delicious. good. It tastes but clearly. It's the either you don't like gin or vermouth. It's one of those two, or lemon. I think it's just the combination of all of it. Go to <laughs> go to your point about live TV. Okay, so when <laughs> I take notes, if there's something that I really want to point out. In the book, yeah. I write the page number down, and then when I like doing my reread, I'll go back and, and mark those pages in the book. So the demonstration of combined telephone and television, mm-hmm. in fact, is one that outruns the imagination of all the wizards of prophecy. It is one of the few things that Da Vinci, Roger Bacon, Jules Verne, and other masters of forecasting failed utterly to anticipate. Even interpreters of the Bible are having trouble finding a passage which forecasts television. Wow. Wow. H.G. Wells did not rise to it in his earlier crystal gazing. Mm. Science has moved ahead so rapidly in this particular line that one of the men who played a major part in developing the television apparatus shown yesterday was of the opinion four years ago that research on this subject was hopeless so he was saying not even in science fiction had they come up yeah, with live they TV. were like this is an insane concept yeah yeah which i feel like is what we do now with cell phones is we were like look at what we thought 2000 was going to be like it's right. pods floating in the air nobody thought everything would be in your pocket yeah now we're sending each other cat memes <laughs> it's interesting if you think even like 30 to 40 years later He's not even president at this point, but if you think 30 to 40 years later, the impact that television would have... Yeah, you just leave it to Beaver. ...on the presidency with... Oh. I, I mean, thinking Kennedy-Nixon debate, thinking... That was much more than 30, 40 years later. Well, I mean, it's 1947. It 40. It 40. Right. Moon landing. Fair. I mean, good grief. Just like all of culture. How oh, that's going to come accelerated, up. you know? In... I don't even know the year. Well, it's 1927 1925. Now. 1925. Okay. Yep. So, Herbert Hoover... 
This is this episode is named The Fisherman. I specifically named it for this story, so we can't skip the story. Go ahead. 1925, Herbert Hoover, he's fishing off the coast of Key West. He's become friends over the years with a man named Ding Darling, who <gasps> a is a name. famous conservationist. There's two current preserves named after Ding Darling. One's in Sanibel Island. I had only heard of it as the Ding Darling like nature preserve until I read this book, and I was like, oh, that's a real guy. Okay. <laughs> Are you saying Dame Darling or Ding? Ding, D-I-N-G, like Ding. ring a bell. Ding. Um, Ding, Ding. Ding Darling is the guy that like drew the original conservation stamps. Like, you've probably seen his stamps before, like the one of the crane. Like, there's the famous yeah. cranes. You've Ding Darley. work. Yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. So, Herbert Hoover catches this 87-pound fish off the coast of Key West. It was an amberjack. That, that was the type of fish. That's okay. abnormal, right? That's enormous. It's a large fish. Although, there's much larger fishes in the waters off Florida. True. Yeah, whales exist. I mean... Yeah. Leviathan. Mm. Oh. Yeah. That's a coffee shop. Go ahead. Um, so he catches this amberjack, which I don't know what that is. It's a type of fish. It's 87 pounds. So he was just off Key West towards the end of his trip. Takes him over an hour to reel it in. Takes a picture like you do when you catch a big fish. You take the picture with it. Like yeah. You put it on your Tinder. <laughs> like it puts you into that like class yeah. of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There it is. There it is. Okay, so burn. he he leaves Florida. He's excited because he got the big fish. He goes back to Washington. Trout season opens. No big deal. All of that's out of his head. This is June 5th, 1925. So around 6 o'clock, he gets a telegraph from the Key West Daily News. And the Key West Daily News wants him to confirm that he caught the amberjack off the coast of Key West. Okay. Because at the same time, the Miami Herald is also claiming... He caught the fish off Miami ah. because their waters like border each other yeah. and they're both fighting for the same tourism dollars. Fun. And at the time, the like big sea fishing is like yeah. the big thing, right? Yeah. Like going to Florida is a big deal. That's an amberjack. It yeah. looks like a uh, fish. All right. So <laughs> thank you, Russ. For yeah, that thank you for showing me that an amberjack looks like every other fish. Big fish. Yeah. Unbeknownst to Hoover, yeah. the picture of him is in advertisements for Miami being like, come to Miami where the secretary of commerce catches big fish. Welcome to Miami where the secretary plays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then Key West Jacob Rosengroen of the Miami Chamber of Commerce, he demands <laughs> that the secretary like says that he caught it off Miami's oh, coast. Man. It became like this. So battle. then at 645, okay. the fourth telegram comes in from William Jennings Bryan. Wow. Who in his retirement, after losing four presidential yeah. you know, nominations, yeah. the great commoner, if you will, the silver knight of the West. Sure. I the leather lunged orator of the plat. Wow, look at you. <laughs> leather lunged. Yeah, I'm trying to do a sandlot thing. Yeah. You're supposed to the repeat that one. Of what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he's now working for the South Miami Realtors Association, and he's like, hey, you're about to get another telegram with some cash. Oh. (laughs) So just say you caught it in Miami. Five minutes later, a fifth telegram comes in, and they're offering $5,000 for Hoover to say, I caught that fish in Miami. Wow. At 7.30, Isaac Walton League, which is not a league, it's a person, he telegraphs that we have your exact location of where you caught the fish, 
and it was two miles out of Miami into Key West. Wow. In the middle of that, Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, having a sense of humor, shoots him another telegraph being like, I want to hold off on any final action on legislation extending easterly the city limits of the Los Angeles to the Gulf Stream. Wow. Like they were trying to telegraph jokes that we all get. Uh, But at the end of the day, it was 15 knots and eight furlongs away from Miami. So technically Key West, Key West wins. Way to go, Key West. Yeah. And that was like, of all of the, you know, character and everything, like the, the fight for where did he catch the 87-pound yeah. amberjack yeah. is one of my favorite stories about <laughs> Hence what? the name of the episode, The Fisherman. What year was this? 1925. When was Ernest Hemingway a Key West fisherman? Ooh, that's a good... Oh, it, uh, it had to be right around had to be right around the same time. Like the 30s, maybe early 30s? Yeah. yeah. Old man in Maybe, the actually, he might have been in Spain. At this time, I, oh. I, he Hemingway went to Key West way later in life. He did. He wrote all of his books when he lived in Europe. Okay, all right. Wow. He had cats with six. The old man yeah. in the sea is yes. about Herbert Hoover catching. That's what I think. Amber Jack. That's what I think. Hundred <laughs> uh, percent. So after seven years serving as Commerce Secretary, Hoover decides to give the White House a shot. He had a ton of national popularity. Coolidge had announced that he's not going to seek re-election, so Hoover becomes the leading Republican candidate. He was one of the stiffest ever candidates to run for president. So much that Republicans were forced to plant articles with headlines like "That man Hoover, he's human." Well, <laughs> During interviews, he would restrict Not himself. a robot. Yeah, and then, yeah. like, they would they would put him on the radio, and they would show him a picture, and they would, like, point out the ones with the stop sign. Yeah. <laughs> that one. That one. But it is important to note before this, like, he couldn't decide if he wanted to be Republican or Democrat. Yeah, like, it right. had never been something he had needed to do before. Yeah, and he, I mean, he said the whole idea of a political campaign filled him with complete revulsion. Like, he didn't want Same, to be... Bro. Yeah, he didn't want to be this political guy. But he voted. There was. Right, right. But one of the things that he was well known for being a problem solver. When Coolidge was president, the Mississippi River flooded. Yeah. And there was a famous quote that went out that said, when a person is sick, they call a doctor. When the United States is sick, they call Herbert Hoover. Which is great. I mean, as far as national popularity, like, that's great. That's a good tagline. But what probably could have gone a long way during yeah. his presidency. Luckily, he was up against Al Smith, who was yeah. a Catholic that was half Italian and half Irish. And if you know anything about the United yeah. States in the 1920s, yeah. that is a terrible combination of yeah. three things. He was also a wet, uh, <laughs> he was also a wet candidate, so he wanted he wanted alcohol, and Hoover was more on the on the dry side. Yeah, because um, this is still Prohibition time uh, at the time. It, well, and Hoover was uh, fun fact a large member of the Bohemian Grove. Ah, uh, oh. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like we need to do a bonus episode. We on the definitely need Speaking of bonus one. episodes, if you want them, you can get them for 10 bucks a month by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash presequential. The election of 1928, gosh, it got really nasty. The KKK got involved, basically claiming that anyone who in votes for Al Smith... In case you're wondering why the KKK got involved, let me remind you, Al Smith was Catholic, yep. Irish, and Italian. <laughs> yep. They basically said, you know, if you vote for him... He's going to swear allegiance to the Pope. Uh, some Protestant ministers even told their congregations that if Smith became president, all non-Catholic marriages would be annulled and that all children of these marriages would be declared Dude, I illegitimate. Love, some, I love some the, boogeymen, even told the like, boogeymen that politicians yeah. have created over time. Yeah. 
<laughs> Some preachers even warned their congregations that if they voted for Al Smith, they would go straight to hell. <laughs> all all non-Catholic marriages would, would be, be adult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but wait, there's more. So around this time, oh uh, New York's Holland Tunnel was just being completed. Republicans circulated pictures of Al Smith on the mouth of the tunnel, declaring that it really led 3,500 miles under the Atlantic Ocean to Rome into the basement <laughs> of the Vatican. Okay, so yeah. this is the original, like, lizard people yes. fire. Right, in Daytona Beach, Florida. <laughs> The school board in Daytona Beach, Florida, instructed that a note be placed in every child's lunch pail that read, oh, quote, no. we must prevent the election of Al Smith to the presidency. If he is chosen president, you will not be allowed to read or have a Bible. That, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. oh but when wait. When did they put him in the lunch boxes? What? When did they put him in the lunch boxes? Because I packed like my children. Like before lunch or after lunch? Were the parents <laughs> putting them in the lunch? I know. I think the school board was saying we need to put these in this kid's lunch box before they go home after lunch. After they have their oh. lunch. Kids, make sure you put your notes in oh. for your parents to get back home. Oh, uh, But wait, there's more. So check this out. One Protestant minister rallied against Al Smith for dancing and he accused him <laughs> in a warehouse and he yeah, yeah, yeah. he did one of these he grabbed a chain and swung around and he accused him of doing the quote bunny hug the turkey trot the hug me tight the shimmy dance and the skunk waltz <laughs> He Another, did the hug me tight? Yeah. How dare he? I know. Another minister claimed that Smith indulged in card playing, drinking, poodle dogs, divorces, <laughs> evolution, <laughs> n- nude art, actors, <laughs> greyhound racing, and modernism. And So, hold on. This oh. That was the church I grew up in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. No, no playing cards, no dancing, no poodle dogs. <laughs> No don't, actors. Don't do that hug me tight either. No <laughs> actors. Nude art. Oh my gosh. Well, Hoover officially proclaimed that his his opponent's religion had no bearing on his ability to be president. But even his wife, Lou, whispered that people had a right to vote against Smith because of his faith. She and many other Republicans spread rumors of Smith's alcoholism, which were already rampant at the time because he was a wet candidate. Hoover won in a landslide that included five states that usually voted Democrats in the South, beating Smith 21 million votes to 15 million. Oh, my gosh. The depths we go to to create boogeymen is insane. Well, when he became president-elect in 1928, Hoover was already pretty wary. He said, My friends have made the American people think that I am some sort of Superman, he said in December of 28. They expect the impossible of me. And should there arise in the land conditions with which the political machinery is unable to cope, I will be the one to suffer. And then somebody shot him and it just bounced off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he was like, yeah, I don't understand uh-huh. why people think I'm super Well, mean. those conditions certainly arose. In a matter of months, he went from being the most celebrated man in America to the most hated. Time magazine referred to him as President Reject. People started calling newspapers Hoover Blankets and dubbed the encampments of unemployed people Hoovervilles. <gasps> Who, like, is that- I think it was all you could afford was because of okay. him. All you could afford right. to cover yourself and protect yourself from the elements was a newspaper. Okay, so, so it's a Hoover blanket. What was his vice president like? Yeah. His vice president was Charles Curtis of Kansas. Okay. He was actually the first, well, and only Native American vice president. He was actually the only Native American to hold office in the Senate or Congress until oh, I think this most recent election. Okay. His vice president was a Native American. Yes. Mixed. Okay. He was half Caucasian French 
and okay. half Native American, the Kerr tribe. Kerr. 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 I've heard of that. C-U-R? Mm-mm. No, K-A-R, I believe. K-E-R-R. Steve uh, is from there. Yeah. Assist leader. Mm-hmm. Charles Curtis. <laughs> okay. John Stockman is the assist. All right. That's not important. So this gentleman, mm-hmm. Charles Curtis. Charles Curtis. The only Native American vice president? Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right. The, I mean, until our current vice president, the only mixed race, non-Caucasian vice president. Okay, fair. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So far, so good. Yeah. Cool. So he grew up in Kansas. No, I'm assuming mm. no one knew this at the time. No, they or knew Or I it. guess well if, you're, if you're looking at the Catholic or the vice president, Native American... Which I'm sure they didn't call him at the time. Oh, no. Of You're going, not. not the Catholic. He was no, a member right? of the Kaw Nation, K A W. K A W. He was K-A-W. basically the first president of, first vice, vice president, president of color. Yeah. His father was from French lineage and his mother was from Kaw lineage. So he was okay. 50% Native American. Okay. Right? Okay. And he grew up on Kaw tribal lands until he was like nine years old, with his hmm. maternal grandparents, Okay, Got right? It. His yep. mom yep. died when he was three. His father went off to the Civil War. He he was raised as any other Native American child. Like, he learned to ride a horse bareback by the time he was three. He wow. learned to ride by holding the mane and shooting bow and arrow. And he actually... Wait, for the, real? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, like yeah. Comanche. Comanche. Yeah. When the Cherokee had come and invaded the Kaw tribal lands, when he was eight years old, I think, he was sent on foot 60 miles to Topeka for help. They just sent him off and wow. he made it. <laughs> yeah, How yeah, old just... was he? He was 10. No, he was eight when Good this happened. Night. Okay. He was eight on foot because he didn't have a horse. And he became like a local I would imagine uh, legend, legend because yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, I was walking in Kansas, late years old and half Native American. Look at those walking in Kansas. <laughs> at that point, his maternal grandparents figured this was a little bit of a rough situation. You think? <laughs> <laughs> right. So this can't be. What, what's this guy's name again? Curtis is Charles Curtis. Charles Curtis. Okay. Charles Curtis. Play me so a the song, Charles Curtis. Charles Curtis. Curtis Lowe? Is that? Yep, what you're doing? that's where I was going. I really Charles like that song. Charles Curtis was the finest eight-year-old who ever walked sixty miles. Mm, that was good. I really like that song. And that's where he actually got a education. So he okay. went to school and then he read law books. Okay. So after high school, he didn't go to law school. He read law books. And after he read those law books, he took the bar exam and passed it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he gets elected to the House of Representatives. That was fast. So here's the big thing. Here's what really well, got to me when I was researching Charles Curtis. Like, okay. He didn't do anything as vice president. Oh, okay. But before he was vice president, there is something called the Curtis Act. Right. So there was the Dawes Act previously from Charles Dawes that took the tribal territories and separated them. Basically started reservations. Yes. Okay. Reservations started taking apart the Native American nation. It was under Cleveland. Yeah. It was under 1887. Yeah. The Dawes Act. Yeah. Okay. The Dawes Act, right? So Basically Charles like Curtis assimilating Native Americans into That's the key word. <clears throat> right? That's the key word because Charles Curtis 
who had grown up on a reservation, then moved in with his white grandparents, got educated, became a lawyer, found a lot of success. <laughs> Man, got educated in that sense has a lot of weight to it. It right? does. Sure. It does. And he, so he became a lawyer, he became a politician, he became very successful from assimilation, okay. right? He became the head of the Indian Affairs. Okay. The Curtis Act was kind of a, a not addendum, but it further stretched the Dawes Act, okay. right? So under the Curtis Act. Amplified it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. There was a few things that happened as a result of the Curtis Act. The complete abolition of tribal governments. So he got oh. rid of wow. the five civilized nations and totally disbanded all the tribal governments. He, so he took did their this. representation away. He took their representation <laughs> away and their central government away entirely. Wow. Right? As, mm, okay. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As a Native American. As a Native American. But he did it... I don't think he did it maliciously. I honestly, after reading a lot about it, I think he was under the, I could be wrong, but I think he thought that if you can't beat him, join him type of situation where he was like, I joined white society and got educated and look at me now. I am a representative. I can influence laws that affect us. Yeah. Even though the Native American nations were saying, no, 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 no. We don't want to do this. He was like, I know better. Yeah. They took what was left of designated tribal land and split it up. Mm. They allowed like subsets of instead of having the main five, they now had subsets of Indian nations that got their own land. So they said, we're going to break all this up so we can have smaller allotments of land. And when they did that, they basically said, okay, we've separated out the land that you guys previously had, but there's this like 90 million acres that we're calling it a surplus. You guys probably don't need it. And those acres are what they sold to non-tribal people in Oklahoma. So because of the Curtis Act, they broke up all the tribal land. And what they considered a surplus land, they just sold to anybody. Hmm. Hmm. So not only did they, with this Curtis Act, did they separate out the land. But in the Dawes Act, the Native Americans were allowed to decide who was allowed to be members or call themselves a members of certain tribes, okay. right? But with the Curtis Act, he put that on the Dawes Commission. He put that on the white politicians to then decide who got to call themselves a Seminole or a Choctaw, no matter what the tribal leader said. If there was somebody with 132nd Seminole, then all of a sudden, if the Dawes Commission allowed it, they had rights to Seminole land. So that was another way of them to kind of continue to... Parcel out the land. Parcel out yeah. the land to non-Native Americans. Wow. It's terrible. I've never even heard of this. Yeah. It's terrible. But he, he rode a horse really good. <laughs> He's a good jockey. Yeah. He had no influence in the Hoover administration. He was also very congenial. So he moved all the way up to majority leader in the Senate. Okay. As... A Native American at the time, which was very hard to do. Yeah. Because, you know, 
they were wildly racist against Native Americans. Sure. And he he was able to move up. So then when he became VP, he almost thought it was a step down because he had less influence and it really frustrated yeah. him. Do you and, know do you know how the Native Americans viewed him at the time? Like w- was he sort of like a tax collector would have been seen back in the day in the in the biblical days? No, I, he doesn't get that reference. No, I uh, <laughs> flipping tables, right? Yeah, flipping right tables. Yeah. Everybody's flipping tables. They yeah. saw him as compromise, conformity. I don't the assimilation, submission, <laughs> ignorance, hypocrisy, brutality, the elite, the seven Is that sons. what they saw him as? <laughs> All of which are American dreams. All of which are American dreams. All of which are American dreams. You gotta be screaming it though. <laughs> so loud. Russ, thank you for yeah, the hey, vice presidential minute. <laughs> but I think that, that we should take a break. Yeah. And when we come back, Herbert Hoover's gonna be president. Yeah, he is. We're just gonna talk about how things get really <laughs> bad really fast for him. We'll be it's right our back. taste. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you are in the market to refinance your mortgage and want an expert to walk you through that process, you need to schedule a call today with Austin Bowman at Caliber Home Loans. Austin's been a friend of mine for years and is one of Caliber's top performing loan consultants with over 14 years of experience and expertise. Austin's number one priority is honesty. He's going to listen to your unique needs and guide you through Caliber's superior processing, underwriting, and closing process. For a smooth, hassle-free process from application to closing on your new mortgage, email Austin Bowman today at austin.bowman, that's B-O-W-M-A-N, at caliberhomeloans.com. You can also find Austin's email in our show notes. Whatever you do, don't ask Austin about the time when he took me out for my first time golfing when we were 16 and we almost hit a goose with our cart. Guys, email austin.bowman at caliberhomeloans.com today. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you need custom-made t-shirts for your team or organization, look no further than our good friends here in Indy, The Art Press. The Art Press is a local, eco-friendly small business that's been around for years here in Indy, designing and printing all the super comfortable shirts you may have seen through their parent company's store, Vardigan. We've worked with them on our awesome new shirts that feature Thomas Jefferson writing a fire-breathing mastodon, and our experience couldn't have gone better. If you need help creating a design or you have your artwork ready to print, Derek and the team at The Art Press can help you get your orders set up online quickly and easily. Plus, they ship everywhere and offer excellent customer service. Get a quote on your order of shirts today at theartpress.com. That's theartpress.com. Welcome back, friends. All right, so Hoover takes office in 1929, and he's very optimistic. He sees this as a promise of a new day. He says in his inaugural address, he boasts that, quote, in no nation are the fruits of accomplishment more secure. Anyone not only can be rich in America, but ought to be rich. But very soon, everyone will be poor. Yeah. So two issues in particular (laughs) took center stage during his first nine months as president, improving the economic health of the nation's agricultural sector and tariff reform, which are both kind of boring, so we're not going to dive really into them. Upon entering office, he called Congress into a special session to address these challenges. In the same year that Hoover won election to the presidency, voters in Illinois sent black Republican Oscar DePriest to the House of Representatives. He was the first black man elected to Congress since Reconstruction. First Lady Lou Hoover defied racist custom at the time and invited DePriest's wife to the White House, marking the first time an African-American had visited the White House since President Theodore Roosevelt had dined with Booker T. Washington in 19 
1901. Lou was a big Girl Scout proponent. So like if you enjoy your Samoas or your Thin Mints, you have Lou Hoover to thank. Samoas are the best. No, the ones with the peanut butter are the best. You're both. I think those are Tagalongs. No, it's Samoas. You're mistaken. Cold, like almost frozen Thin Mints are really, really good too. If you enjoy Girl Scout cookies, you have Lou Hoover to thank. Yeah, you do. In the week and a half before Christmas 1929, one million Americans lost their job in the aftermath of the great crash of the stock market. The nation's economic slide would only continue. By the end of 1930, more than four million Americans were out of a job. And by summer of 1931, that number doubled to eight million Americans unemployed. If I can just jump in with a little bit of levity during the Depression, right after Hoover took office, his doctor told him he needed to bring his weight down and he needed to start doing regular exercise, preferably outdoors. Okay. So the question remained, what type of exercise? Maybe Uh, like walks or like horseback riding or something. He created a new game with a medicine ball, six pound medicine ball. Similar to tennis, same rules, two people, (laughs) but with a volleyball net, eight foot, and they would just throw it back and forth with the same rules as tennis. And whoever had the most points when the factory whistle blew on the Potomac at 731. And this was eventually called Hoover Ball. Yeah. Oh, man. Was it scored like tennis? Yes, that's what I said. But it lasted until 7.30. So at like 7.15, somebody's like, do we really have to keep going? Like, you're, yeah. it's 21 to nothing. Like, why do we keep going? And they were like, hey, man, the president has to do this thing every day yeah. or he dies. So... <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Have you guys heard of the 1932 Bonus Army March on Washington? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why he has such a bad name. One of them. Yeah. So it's May 1932. But let's talk about who was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's 17,000 veterans assembled in makeshift camps scattered around the Capitol. Basically, they're trying to get these promised bonuses from the Great War that have Mm -hmm. just been delayed and delayed. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. July 28th, 1932. President Hoover ordered his Secretary of War, Patrick Hurley, to clear the Bonus Army camps and disperse the protesters. So who did he get? All right. Douglas (laughs) MacArthur, supported by six tanks commanded by Major George Patton. Oh, Uh really? Okay, Uh so MacArthur and Patton, they assemble on Pennsylvania Avenue to carry out the orders from the president. There's sabers, fixed bayonets. Burn it down! Tear gas, (laughs) a mounted machine gun. The infantry and the cavalry charged the veterans, basically evicting them and their families. Also, Eisenhower was there. So the veterans retreat back across the river to their Hooverville camp, and President Hoover ordered the troops to stand down until the next day. MacArthur, however, yeah, claiming the bonus marchers were attempting to overthrow the U.S. government, ignored. Stop resisting. Ignored the who uh, the president's That's what he order. did. That's exactly what he did. He was like, stop resisting. Nobody did anything. They went away. They went to their tents. And MacArthur just started yelling, stop resisting. And then blowtorched all of it. He ignored the president's order, foreshadowing, and immediately launched a second charge. By the end of the day, 55 veterans had been injured and 135 had been arrested. The political fallout was very swift and severe. I mean, already the economy is in the tank. And Hoover took all of the blame. Yeah. I 
I mean, you've got starving veterans being chased by tanks. And so his bid for re-election is essentially non-existent. Later, a little bit, FDR, when he's president, issued an executive order allowing 25,000 veterans to work in the New Deal program called the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC. Oh, well, we'll, we, we'll we need to, that to talk way later. more yeah, yeah. because there's so many things that came out of the CCC. So basically four years after they had been driven from Washington by General MacArthur, the Bonus Army veterans finally got their bonuses. But let's be very clear. They were driven out of Washington by MacArthur, not Hoover. And, and Patton, yeah. Like, very clear. Yeah. All right, Hoover Dam, let's talk a little bit about it because it is important. It, basically, his name got attached to it somewhat on accident. <laughs> it's 1930. The Secretary of the Interior is out in Nevada to basically mark the official opening of the project. And he basically takes advantage of the pageantry and makes this into a marketing campaign. And he says, I have the honor and privilege of giving a name to this new structure in Black Canyon under the Boulder Canyon Project Act. It shall be called the Hoover Dam. And this ticked a lot of people off because Hoover was not really popular at the time. And basically... His his successor under FDR, the new Secretary of the Interior, did a 180. He switched the in-progress structure's name to Boulder Dam. It didn't happen until 1947 when Truman. President Truman signed a law authorizing the original Hoover name, recognizing his predecessor's hand in bringing the dam to life in the first place. Yeah. So FDR did a fantastic job, like I said at the beginning of the episode, of demonizing this human being yeah and then in the time he was in the office the 70 years fdr was in office <laughs> he millennia. never brought hoover back in hoover had some sort of hand in every presidency through lbj yeah that's how well respected he was yeah every single president brought him back in except fdr fdr hated this man yep never met him hated him and it says a lot about like how politics works because if you can effectively market against somebody, you can ignore all of the actual good that person yeah. does. Because FDR was so good, and I, I'm not trying to rail against FDR. I think it's crappy that FDR drove this dude into the mud. Yeah. And that might be one of the only stains that we can say from now about FDR. So let's get Hoover out of office. I mean, shocker, he's not reelected. Yeah, sure. And he goes into retirement out in his home in Palo Alto, California. For much of the 1930s, was basically just writing essays. He was involved in party politics. Not a lot, actually. Very few Republicans wanted him involved. So he basically launches a series of bitter attacks on the New Deal, as best as he can from California. Uh, Probably rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, he hated Roosevelt's decision to abandon the gold standard, to recognize the Soviet Union, to pack the Supreme Court, so on and so forth. And in, yeah, so the the concept of packing the Supreme Court, that's yeah. not a new concept. Yep. That was an FDR concept. Yeah, it really angered and worried Hoover. In 1938, he is on a tour in Europe, and he traveled extensively, and he actually met with Adolf Hitler. Oh, bit, yes, let's talk about this. The former... Do you president. know about this? No. Okay, this isn't like rising <laughs> Hitler. So like he's a dictator and Hoover is dressing him down because Hitler is just shouting in this private meeting. And Hoover's like, why are you being so angry right now? I feel like you and I took different things away from this. So yeah. he walked away from the meeting with Hitler. He was like, this person's clearly intelligent and he's clearly like a threat. Reminder, it's 1938. So we're yeah. seven years before what we would consider World War II. A lot of people in America at the time thought that Hitler was this patsy of the Nazi party. They were putting him up like he's the mouthpiece and he's not something to be worried about. Yeah. Hoover said he's intelligent. He recognized the danger of Hitler, but he's probably only a threat to Western Europe and the Soviet Union. Yeah. 
And so that was probably the one downfall he had. But for all the other people that were like, eh, Hitler's not a big deal. Like he was like, no, he is a big deal. And he's going to be a big deal over here. For them over there. Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to be a big deal for us. Well, because Hoover, I mean, if he's looking back in his rearview mirror, he sees just all this unnecessarily bloodshed in the Great War, right? Sure. So he's like, listen, we probably don't need to get into this, guys. But then we get attacked. December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor happens, and Hoover's like, all right. we." Well, that was the only time he backed off on FDR, because FDR killed his career. Yeah. And he was like, okay, look, Pearl Harbor, we got to follow the dude. Yeah, we got to. He's in charge. We got to follow him. And that was probably the only time FDR gave him reverence, as to your point a little bit earlier, where he was like, all right, you've got the experience. You got to do some stuff. Although they still never did meet. So basically, he continues. Yeah, they never met in person. FDR and Hoover never met? Never in person met. Yeah. Yeah. FDR hated him that much. I always thought that he didn't really hate him, but he was the scapegoat. So you can't give the scapegoat. No, no. FDR legitimately hated him. Wow. It's interesting in the tone of the two books that we read, too. Oh, yeah, because the author of the FDR book hates Hoover. Hoover is the worst human being on the planet. Why did FDR hate him so much? Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I feel like if you dive into it, like, FDR was a pretty partisan policy guy. Yeah. And, like, this was his rival, and he had to take his rival out. Elite New York Democrat. And then you've got the guy that's truly altruistic doing things that's popular amongst the people how do you take him out also you, i mean you kill his name zero right? elected experience okay you know i mean See, fdr that, silver spoon you know okay yeah i didn't read the fdr book so i don't know what kind of man he is you didn't I don't read know this he, book either i didn't read any of the books to be clear <laughs> you didn't read this one either we did it for you. Thank you i think that when you're coming from things from two completely opposite angles you're going to naturally hate each other Right? This is Reggie Miller versus the Knicks. <laughs> okay. Am I wrong? I mean, no. I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. No. I'm trying to like, yeah, it is that we are more important than you because our city's more important than you and you are just farmland nothing. And it sense. is Reggie Miller going, I can score eight points in nine seconds. Yeah, I can. Do you think there was, until I mean, recently from, from Trump to Biden, do you think there was a more contentious presidential transition from Hoover to FDR to current day. I think this most recent transition was probably the most turbulent since Hoover to FDR. Yeah. That's well, my theory. I think you're right. I think you're probably right. Let's get Hoover out of his retirement years and into the grave, and then we'll talk okay. about his legacy. Yeah. All right. So Hoover continues his humanitarian work in his retirement. He writes extensively. He wrote The Ordeal of Woodrow Wilson, the first biography of one president written by another, and another book called Fishing for Fun and To Wash Your Soul. <laughs> <laughs> and to wash and your to soul. And to wash your soul. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, one of my favorite things on the planet is when Russ goes... Okay. Okay. (laughs) He criticized Truman for dropping the bomb. He criticized him for intervening in the Korean War. He supported the candidacies of Robert Taft in 48 and 52 and of Eisenhower in 56. He was less enthusiastic about Nixon's run for the presidency in 1960, however. Basically, he lives to be 90 years old, outlives everyone, all of his critics. He just outlives them. Go ahead. Outlives every president but John Adams. Correct. He was the second president after John Adams to live to be 90. Like, let's think about this. This man was the president before the Depression and died in 1964. Yeah. He made Benjamin Harrison pay for a baseball ticket. (laughs) 
and he lived through LBJ. Oh my god. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, go all the way back to Benjamin Harrison. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. Wow. But he also wrote like what seven books <laughs> yeah, he wrote a in lot. his last five years. Yeah. I want to read an excerpt from one of his books about space. So <laughs> that's the other thing. That's the other thing. This guy made Benjamin Harrison pay for a baseball ticket and lived to see someone on the moon. He lived to see someone on the moon. That's wild. <laughs> This is a great Hoover quote before you get to yours. When asked how he felt on reaching the milestone of turning 90, Hoover replied, too old. (laughs) In one of his books, somebody was like, you should talk about perspective space travel. And in a book he wrote, he said, I am not worried about your ambition to go to either Mars or Saturn. Even at the speed of 17,545 miles per hour, made by Colonel Glenn. John Glenn. John Glenn. Yeah. It would take several hundred years to make that journey. You better choose a nearby planet. Two are named for me, and you may use them. However, if you got there, you would die, as there is no oxygen or water. So I suggest you stick to Earth for the present. That was his like was, take he, on space travel. Did he have an asteroid named after him? Yeah, were there planets? Named after <laughs> I have no idea. But I just like, like okay, that his sir, take right. on space travel is it would take too long, and if you even got there, there's no oxygen, so give up now. And and five years later, we were on the moon. Wait, hold on. He thought there were two planets named after him. I think there were asteroids named after him, yeah. Well, he slips into a coma and dies in New York City, October 20th, 1964. We don't know the last words he spoke. At the the time of his death, Hoover had been out of office for over 31 years. This was the longest retirement in presidential history until President Jimmy Carter. Carter has the record by... Is Billy still alive? By 10 years. Seriously. Carter broke the record and then has added a decade to it. And he's still adding. He's still out there. Uh, both uh, Lou and Herbert are buried in a lovely park-like setting at his presidential museum in West Branch, Iowa. So he finally made it home, back to Iowa. Let's talk about his legacy. The defining event in the U.S. during his years as president, without a doubt, was Hoover the Great Depression, obviously. Really, he's he's so much more than that. And this episode has basically gone at length to talk about, like, he's so much just more than the Depression. One of the most high-character individuals we had as the president. Yeah, cradle to grave. Extremely high character individual. I went into this journey as a giant Teddy Roosevelt stan. Yeah, I remember. Herbert Hoover is my favorite president. Wow. That's cool. But I also like really encourage anybody listening, be open. Yeah. Because I went into this thinking it's Teddy Roosevelt, it's Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. I don't know anything about this guy. Sure. He's my favorite president. Like, That's cool. He really is. Uh, according to C-SPAN's Presidential Historian Survey that we always reference. Uh, this Herber- is where I'm going to get owned. Dude, it's so angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's Herbert number 43. Hoover. Herbert Hoover currently sits not far away from that. 36. Yeah. Below Zachary Taylor and above Warren Harding. Which Ooh. is funny because I really like Zach Taylor yeah. too. Yeah. Let's answer the question that we always ask. Herbert Hoover is the reason the United States of America has electricity to Vegas. Okay. All right, oh. that's, that's fair. Had the first Native American, first and only Native American vice president. Huh. Got General MacArthur about 20 oh, years later. Dude, that's not a good one. I know, I'm saying. Uh, there's a lot, though. Let's dive into little known facts, shall we? So he's the first Quaker 
president, and he's the first president to have a telephone sitting on his desk. We mentioned he's the first guy to go on mm-hmm. live TV. His mother not only named her son Herbert when she meant Hubert, like you had mm-hmm. mentioned, or Hubert. Herbert. Uh, but sometimes she spelled her own name with an H at the end, Hulda with an H. Sometimes she Who doesn't? Herbert would sometimes write his own son's name as Alan, A-L-L-A-N, and other times A-L-L-E-N. Speaking of Alan... He had two pet crocodiles. Oh. Bringing, In the bathtub? Yeah, bringing our surprising Named prehistoric Taft. dinosaur tally. <laughs> to three. To what feels like 17. But it's three. <laughs> it's three. We have yep. Quincy. Yep. One. Quincy definitely had one. Had one. Because I made the joke that his name was Taft. This is Hoover's son, Alan. Hoover had, had two. There was another so three. crocodile. There was another third alligator. No. That bad guy from Romancing the Stone. There was an alligator in there. He had crocodiles. Yeah, it was one of the Bond movies. Look at them. Uh, shaken, not stirred. On March 3rd, 1931, Hoover signed the congressional resolution that made the Star Spangled Banner the national anthem of the United States. Up to that point, we didn't have an official national song. Uh, Hoover did not accept his salary for president, but he donated it to charity instead. One fifth. One fifth. One fifth, because that was all he was legally allowed to donate. Got was it. One fifth. He and Lou translated a sixteenth-century oh, guide to mining and metal smelting from Latin into English. <laughs> of course, in they did. Twelve. Herbert was inducted into the inaugural class of the National Mining Hall of Fame, which is a thing. In Ooh, that's in West Virginia. In 1988, <laughs> and Lou was inducted in 1990. So they are, I'm sure, the only couple. Uh, Where is it? It's in Colorado. It's Legend. not in West Virginia. Legend That's garbage. Two minor planets, 932 Huveria and 1363 Hub- There Her- they are. Her- <laughs> Herberta are named in his honor. There they are. There's oh. your answer to your question. You Sorry, he didn't have dementia. He uh, said, I have two of them. Blaine, you named this episode The Fisherman. One reporter said that he saw the president carrying rocks and building dams in the rivers wherever he fished. So not only was he a fisherman, but he was still an engineer. At he was heart. a beaver. He was a beaver. <laughs> he, was, he was like, not today, running water. Yeah, no, we can't stand for this. <laughs> You guys, thanks for listening to the Presequential Podcast brought to you by Greeks Pizzeria. Thank you to our other sponsors, Austin Bowman of Caliber Home Loans, Chop Shop Barbershop, and the Indie Art Press. If you want one of these amazing Mastodon t-shirts, go to ryansongs.com. Don't forget to sign up and become a patron at patreon.com slash presequential. For 5 or $10 a month, you get all kinds of early and ad-free and sometimes bonus episodes. And please follow us on social. Leave a review. Our next episode, our season three opener on 32nd, President Franklin D. Roosevelt will be released on a TBD date. We hope you enjoyed episode 31, The Fisherman of the Presequential Thank Podcast. Thank you so much to Greeks Pizzeria for sponsoring season two. I'm excited about season three. And man, we've got some heavy hitters coming. We sure do. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you for following the podcast thank you for being nerds with us yes <laughs> laughing at our stupid jokes from the bottom yeah, of my yeah. heart thank you so much for following us and i hope that we can continue to make you guys happy and laugh for another 15 episodes that's right we'll see you at season three coming up soon guys 